What's a biblical view of the separation of church and state? It's just the perspective of this, that here's the church, it's a different sort of realm of activity than the government. The government's here to punish evildoers and to keep the peace. The church is here to evangelize the world. We invade every government, but we don't try to make it a theocracy because that would be counterfeit anyways. So I go and wherever I'm at, I submit, I yield, but I do call government to the moral accountability they have before God, which is why I preach against certain government wrongs. So today we're going to talk about the um, separation of church and state from a biblical perspective. Now, let me, let me start by saying this. I've never heard a message like the one I'm about to deliver to you. I'm doing my best to try to pull these truths together from the scripture, and I'm really excited about it. I think it's wonderful stuff. But in order to kind of get us all on the same page as we get started, I want to tell you um, what this is not about. This is not about America. This is not about the Constitution. This is about a Christian learning principles that they could apply to any country that they may find themselves in throughout time. So this is not about America. Uh, this should be applicable no matter where you live. There are biblical principles about understanding the difference between the church and a Christian's role in the church versus government. And where do these things intersect and overlap and what are the differences, at least to the best of my ability. So let me let me clarify even more by telling you, I'm going to try to answer seven questions, or excuse me, eight questions. I'm going to try and answer eight questions tonight. Here's the questions. I'll read them to you, and then we'll go through the text, and we'll see if we can answer these questions one at a time. So one of them is, uh, first, what's a biblical view of the separation of church and state? Because there's multiple views. We want to understand not the modern American view, not the old American view, which are to two totally different views, but rather... What's a biblical perspective? Two, um, is there ever such a thing as a secular government? A truly, completely secular government. Does that exist? Biblically speaking. Three, what's wrong with government trying to act like it is the church? Four, what's wrong with the church trying to act like it's the government? Five, why shouldn't Christians turn their back on government... So why we shouldn't do that. Number six is, where does the Bible stand on capital punishment? And seven, should preachers speak out against the government? And number eight, do Christians want a theocracy? So these are, to me, really interesting questions. And I've, I've even gone through, I like to Google stuff and say, how do other pastors answer these questions? How would, but the problem is, when I look at the answers for these questions, nobody quotes the Bible, right? They give their answer. They talk about, always it's about America. It's never, never mind what goes on with the rest of the world, the majority of the world. It's always just about the United States, and I'd like to go beyond that. So first, let's read Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. This is our government passage, and this is why we're talking about this. Let's just read it through, then we'll go through it slower, and we'll actually analyze these things. It says in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not, are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then it goes into the next, the rest of the passage we'll begin covering next week. But let me see if I can get through this cool stuff this week. I, I get excited when I get biblical clarity on complicated or difficult topics. And that's what I think we have uh, for us tonight. So verse one, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. These verses obviously are dealing with us in general submitting to government, but all of that comes after verse one. Verse one becomes the foundation that the rest of the verses are built on. The major principles in verse one, it's like because of this, because of verse one, now verses two through seven follow logically. So let's start by building that foundational truth. And we'll start with this phrase, there is no authority except from God. I think this is really important. So I want to immediately stop and think about this concept because this blew my mind. This seems to me like not just a theological point, but a philosophical point. A philosophical point that there is no authority except from God. Because the truth is genuine authority, like genuine, like you actually really do have authority. You're not just claiming authority. You're not just telling people what to do, but they ought to obey you because it's real authority. That kind of authority, it could not exist apart from God. Now, let me explain a little bit. Authority is one person's right, right, like moral right to tell someone else what to do. Like, let's say that this is my bike and someone else comes up and they grab my bike and start riding away with it. And I say, hey, stop. Do I have the authority to tell them to stop riding my bike? Not in atheism. <laughs> like in atheism, it's just fabricated. I just, I just say, yeah, yeah, let's make that authority because we feel like society works better. We like society better that way. But we're just fabricating these things. But if there's a God who has all authority and he loans out some, some authority to human beings in some respect, then that authority is real. Because as I'm accountable to God, I'm now accountable to that person in their sphere of authority. So genuine authority, I don't think could exist philosophically apart from God. Um, some philosopher will disagree with me, but there's always a, some philosopher disagreeing with you on literally even your existence. So I don't worry about that too much. I think this is rational and sound. No authority, and it's right here in the text. There is no authority except from God. If you didn't get your authority from God, guess what? You don't have it because there is no authority except from God. That's a really interesting thing. So authority being the, the right of one to rule over the other or to tell someone else what they ought to do. Um, then we have the idea that without God, we have no simply no standard of behavior at all. I don't see how there's any morality apart from God, how you could even tell someone that something's good or evil in a moral sense. Like this hamburger still tastes good. I enjoy the taste of it, but I can't say that rape is any worse than me not liking the taste of it, you know, without God. And, and, uh, so there's, you have a, a moral issue there and that's, that's where this authority issue comes. It falls under that exact same concept. So, I mean, how could anyone claim the right to tell someone else what to do or hold them accountable for anything? If there is no ultimate true authority that's bestowing that right, I don't see how they could imagine if I walked up and said, I'm the governor of California now. And they go, well, did we vote you in? Is there, did you get ratified by some government or something like this? And I go, no, no, I'm just claiming to be the, govern the governor. Okay, but now let's say I get enough people to believe I am. Does that now make me the governor? 
no, that just seems a little fishy, doesn't it? But that's really kind of what government is apart from God. It's just, I got enough people to do what I said, so guess what? I'm in charge. And um, that's, that's unfortunate. So apart from God, all there is is might, all there is is threats, but it's empty of true authority. I think atheists who claim to have authority even over their own children are suffering from a philosophical contradiction in their worldview. You don't even have authority over your own child in atheism, not morally speaking, not true, honest, genuine authority. All you have is more power. And you have enough people around you allowing you to do it, not stopping you. But I, I don't see how you can escape philosophical anarchy in atheism. Okay, so that, I will now move forward. Okay, I, I've explained the philosophical side. I'm not going to harp on that. But I do think that that's the point here. There is no authority except from God. Take God out. There is no such thing as authority. Not really. That's the first thing. There's no authority except from God. So this should create a sense of accountability from me to authority, because if authority really is going back to God, well, now I should respect authority, shouldn't I? You see how verses one through seven all kind of hinge on this one truth. Wow. You know, it's like God actually did instill authorities in this world with authority. So I want to submit as unto God now because I honor him and I love him. But it also should create another sense of accountability that doesn't go from me to authority, but it goes to that authority and God. If there's no authority except from God, then that means whatever authority you have, you're accountable to God with that. That's interesting to me. This means, and I'll answer one of my questions here, this means that secular government, entirely secular government, is impossible. It's a lie. Because if you truly had secular government, it would have no authority. But if all authority comes from God, then any governmental authority, any government that has authority, this connects to God. They're accountable to God, which means this isn't entirely secular, is it? Not really. I mean, I don't see how that's possible. This, this creates a lot of confusion. I think we get confused and we think we have a, a secular government somewhere, a perfectly secular government. Now, you may have a government that doesn't influence religious things, which is, I think, I think a good thing but that doesn't make it actually secular. It's still accountable to God for, uh, for the decisions they make. Um, they might be over people, but God is over them. So, so their authority may be from God, but they answer to God. Um, so secular government, I do think, is, impossible, is an impossibility from a biblical perspective, from a Christian worldview. However, it's wrong for government to try to be the church. Because as we'll continue and we'll get into these details, uh, as we go through some, not only Romans 13, but we'll talk about some other passages as well that talk about government. Um, never do we see government having a right to run your relationship with Jesus. This just isn't the case. Or, or, to, or to add or change doctrine or to, to tell you when you can worship or things like that. And consistently in the scripture, when they were told when they can worship by government, like Daniel, he just doesn't listen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they just don't listen. They just don't care. They're like, no, you have no right. This is, you don't have authority in this area of government. You have authority in other areas. So it's, so it's not secular, but it is separated from, from your obedience to God. But it's also wrong is church trying to be the government. In John 18, 36, we actually have the words of Jesus that back this up. Um, Jesus is standing before Pilate and he's like, you know, you claim to be a king. You know, why, why is this? You're claiming to be a king. Pilate's trying to understand Jesus. Jesus is like a conundrum for him. is sort of a puzzle. And Jesus responds in John 18, 36 and says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he says something profound. If, if, hypothetical, right? If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So he not only says my servants aren't going to fight, but he tells them why. Because the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. 
The government of Jesus is a true thing, but it's not a worldly government. So the church trying to be a government of this world really fights against the very words of Jesus. And it's a problem. And it may not seem like a big deal to you, but throughout history, people have tried this. They've tried this experiment, and it always fails. The application is, his servants would fight. The principle that's guiding it is, my servants aren't going to fight because my kingdom's in OTW, not of this world, right? (laughs) The church is not to be held up like it's even in the same realm as government. I think this is an important principle, right? The church, the body of Christ... And even authorities within the church were not to be held up like we're even in the same realm as government. We are part of an eternal thing. We're part of, an all, in all honesty, a much bigger thing than any government. Um, but it's not of this world. So the book of Romans, it assumes this, this, this fact that church is different than government. And it doesn't say for the church to become the governing authority. Now, I have to say this because there are people right now who preach about the whole idea of like heaven's coming down and we're invoking the government of God on earth. And they're... There are some Christians trying to get into government roles, not to be salt and light, but rather to take over and say, we're bringing, we're going to run the kingdom of God out of government. Uh, Like the government will run the kingdom of God. And this is really contrary to prophecy as well, because when Jesus's kingdom comes, it's like, remember Daniel's vision, right? The vision where the rock comes down, actually it was Nebuchadnezzar, right? Where the rock comes down and smashes the statue and it like grows. Okay. It'll, it'll happen, but it's going to be Jesus who does it, not, not us trying to invade the world's governments. Instead, what are we told? We're told to submit. Submit. That's what Romans is telling us. We have to submit to government. That's the call on a believer is submit whatever government you're in, just yield to it. Because the church is meant to spread out through all the whole world, be involved in every facet of of society and be in every government or citizens of every government and it's allowed to work that way. You don't have to take over anything. You're preaching the kingdom of God. Man, this this government's perishing anyways, man. Just get them into the kingdom. This is the eternal thing. So Romans assumes this kind of concept because the church is not a nation of the world. We're spread throughout the nations of the world. We're not a nation. I don't have a national identity. I have an eternal citizenship in heaven, but I don't have a national identity in Christ. My national identity is I'm, I'm American. I'm from the United States of America. But I really don't care. Put me in any government of the world and I'll be a good citizen of it, but I'm, my ultimate commitment is going to be to Jesus Christ. So we're told to submit wherever we happen to go. So the whole idea of the church governing the world, that's wrong. When the church tries to be the government as some people want it to be, I think that that's actually counter to the gospel because the gospel is meant to be a free invitation that you can reject. But you're not allowed to reject government, are you? Good luck. (laughs) Good luck with that. So the minute the church tries to become government, now we're saying submit or else. But Jesus, the apostles, even, even throughout the New Testament, we have the preaching and there's a decision that you're allowed to make. You're allowed to accept, you're allowed to reject. We believe in freedom of religion, even freedom of false religion. That seems to be a biblical concept to me, at least temporarily until Jesus comes and deals with it himself. Um, So let him who is thirsty come, not come or I will stab you in the head. Right, that's a different religion. You're familiar with it. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, (coughs) and you might want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5 uh, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 5. This passage is really profound to me. I think that people don't generally notice what I'm about to try to try to draw out for us. Paul 
answers the hypothetical question in this passage. Should I, as the Apostle Paul, should I be judging the world? Now, most people, when they hear the word judging, they think judging, like as in looking and going, you shouldn't really do that. But that's not the judging Paul's talking about. We absolutely need to judge the world in this sense. We absolutely need to go to the world and preach. Stop that. Don't do that. That's wrong. Repent and turn to Christ. That's a good judging that we should do. The judging he's talking about is like a court judge judging. Should I go to the world and say, hey, world, I am going to condemn you as guilty and punish you for what you're doing. This is, now, this isn't Paul saying, if I was the governor, should I do it? He's saying, should I as an apostle? Now, my theory is this. If Paul the apostle to the Gentiles says that he has no realm for judging the world judicially, then doesn't that mean that Christians just don't have this realm? And that's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging those who are also outside? Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul's dealing with a guy who's breaking the laws of God. He's, he's sleeping with his father's wife, probably a stepmother, sleeping with her. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, you can read the whole passage, but he says, kick him out of the church. He won't repent. Make him leave the church. Now, once he's out of the church, that's, that's as far as our reach goes as the church. Deliver him unto Satan, into the world, basically. And then he says, but what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? I'm not even trying to get you to do anything about people in sin in the world as far as forcing them to stop or things like that. Preach at them. Reach them with Jesus. But you're not trying to force a governmental control on them from the church. Does that make sense? Paul says, what do I have to do with having a judicial role in the lives of those who are outside the church? The, the, um, the role of a Christian, a pastor, or even, even the apostle Paul doesn't have a role. Yet there are people right now Churches where they're saying, so-and-so, you have an apostolic calling in government. You're supposed to go into government and subdue it for the kingdom of God. And I think this is mixing the realms of church and government. These are two different things. They don't mix. They don't blend. Um, you, can get, you can be a Christian in government. We'll talk about that. But being a Christian trying to take control of government and force the rule of Jesus into people's lives is counter to the gospel itself. And I think that that becomes clear through these passages. I will take your guys' questions afterwards. I expect some good questions tonight. Uh, so we might want to write them down. <clears throat> so if Paul the Apostle says, what do I have to judge, do with judging those who are outside? I think the principle is we don't. We don't. We preach to them. We do call them out for their sin, but we don't try to control the world. But then there's the question, should I just abandon? Should I just abandon the government. Should, as a Christian, should I just abandon the government and say, forget you government, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm not of this world, I, and maybe like the Jehovah's Witness, I won't even salute a flag, I won't serve in the military, I can't be involved in government in any, in any way. I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, the number one reason is this, is that we have no teaching in the New Testament that tells us to abandon government. But we have a lot of other good reasons not to abandon government too. Throughout the Old Testament, we see things like Daniel, who was in a very high position in a pagan secular government and was placed there by God for the glory of God. We have Joseph, who was in a very high position in a secular, secular-ish, I mean, certainly without God, without the true God, uh, government, pagan, and he is there raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh. And he's having a huge impact. God raised him up, did, went to, through great pains to raise him up in that position. Then you have people in the New Testament, like centurions and things like this, who are involved in government. They get, they get into Christ, and they're never told to abandon their post. So we have, so we have examples in, in, of people serving. We also have this in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 
He says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Should the church be concerned about the health of government and of of the way people are living around them? Absolutely, man. I am to be praying, first of all, for this, that I'm praying for the benefit of all of society, for safety and peacefulness, which is really the chief role of government is to just try to increase the safety of the citizens. And so I want to create this for the people around me. Uh, I want to pray for it. I can't just abandon government. I have to care. I have to pray. I have to make a difference. I can't think of any reason not to be involved. I have biblical examples of believers being involved, but not one of them did they go into the government and try to turn it into the church. That's what I'm saying. We don't do. I don't go into the government and convert it into the church. I'm a light. I preach the truth of Christ. I don't compromise. I don't get all quiet about my beliefs, but I don't try to make all of my religious beliefs into policy in the government. That's the thing. Government is for the safety of all of its citizens. Christianity is for the salvation of souls. These are very different things. So just recognizing these, I think, two different realms, they intersect, but they don't do the same things. And you can be a Christian in government. You can be a Christian who's not, depending on God's calling on your life. Um, so let's continue in Romans 13, verse 1. So it says, <coughs> sorry for the slowness of this. We'll speed up in a moment. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And this is now a very powerful statement. The authorities would be specific governmental authorities, like the Caesar of the time, as he's writing to the Romans in Rome. And he's like, the Caesar appointed by God. Wait, what? The Caesar appointed by God, Nero at the time, not a good guy. Appointed by God. So if this Caesar Nero, who who butchered Christians and murdered them, if he's appointed by God, that changes my perspective on things, doesn't it? Now, I want to balance this out and say this. Authority, though, just because you have authority and you're even put there by God, it doesn't make your decisions good or right, for that matter. And it doesn't mean you won't suffer incredible judgment and wrath from God because of the bad things you did as the authority appointed by God. There's plenty of examples of the Bible showing that, you know, people in government authority did bad things. Like in Exodus 1, we have Pharaoh killing the, 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 uh, the Hebrew newborn babies. And interestingly enough, we have... Um, God using that to bring Moses into the house of Pharaoh, which he then uses as part of his scheme for delivering Israel. So we have God who allows a wicked Pharaoh to be in place, in a sense, appoints him. Though Pharaoh does things that God hates, that God will judge him for. And so we have this balance where God is sovereign, yet he's allowing the free will of man. And we have the sovereignty and the free will, I think, coexisting at the same time. The prophets are constantly dealing with these things. They'll even, the prophets of the Old Testament would not only preach against Israel when the, when the, when the Israelite kings, the only theocracy the world's ever known was, was ancient Israel, right? And they would preach against Israeli kings, but sometimes they would go out and be like, the burden of the Lord against Babylon, the burden of the Lord against Syria. And these prophets of God would go and preach to pagan rulers. And I think that's an example for us today. I'm not trying to control the government, but I'll tell you what, I will call you out. And that's a biblical thing to do as a Christian. I should call you out. So following the, 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 the path even of John the Baptist, who was beheaded because he spoke out against the ungodliness of Herod. He still submitted to Herod, but he spoke the truth about it. And so we have that balance. We have that balance. 
In Genesis uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, I think we have an answer to our question about capital punishment. And um, this is actually something that was instituted, I believe, by God. And we'll get into this a little bit more. But this is actually, we think, Genesis 9, the initial institute of government where all authority first was handed to men over other men in one particular area. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. Meaning that if somebody murders you, I will hold them accountable. So for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it from the hand of a man. For from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. God is not just saying I'll I'll have an accountability if someone murders someone else. He says by man, his blood will be shed. He's instituting the ability of mankind to bring capital punishment upon someone who murders another man. This is pre-law. This is mosaic. This is not mosaic, right? This is noaic. This is after the flood. It's for mankind. It's not just for the law of Israel. So this is really the 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 keystone of the power of government to say if government exists for one reason, it's to it's to stop things like that from happening, right? It's to stop murders from taking place, and to give man the ability to punish other men for those things. Um, that's interesting. So it's specifically about capital punishment. And, uh, and I think the con- conclusion from the Romans verse 1, 13, 1 is let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, right? So if, if there's no authority except from God and the authorities that are appointed by God, then I should, I should fall in line and submit to those authorities, whoever they are. But then, of course, the questions come. Well, but in what situations can I not submit? And I happen to like those kinds of questions. <laughs> I'm interested in that myself as well. So I'm going to give you a list of possible exceptions to that rule based on scripture. So here are some of those exceptions. And one of them, I, I think maybe you wouldn't expect, but throwing off an oppressive, invading government. We see this multiple times in the book of Judges, where Israel has been oppressed by some foreign nation that came into their land, and then they throw off that nation, and they do so with God's blessing in it, not just like the rebels, but this is a type of rebellion that was endorsed by God. Um, so there may be a time for that type of thing, throwing off an oppressive, invading government. Another exception to the rule would be running from persecution. In fact, Jesus did this when he was yay big. Joseph and Mary fled from, from Bethlehem all the way down to Egypt. They didn't go back to Nazareth because Herod was trying to kill this Christ child. So they fled. They left the whole government and took off. You should submit to what the, the unvalid, invalid death order of a government. No, run. <laughs> this is this is a good biblical principle. Jesus did it, and you should follow in his steps. So, another exception to the rule would be refusing an order to do something evil. In Exodus one, the Egyptian midwives are told that they're to kill these Hebrew babies. If it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. And they let the babies live. They actually lie to Pharaoh about it, and then God blesses them for this blesses them. He didn't just go, I'm glad you didn't. He actually blesses them. They have their own children, their own families because of it. So this is something where they rebelled against government because the, the, the role of government was abandoning their actual most essential role and they were murdering. And so they did what was right in the eyes of God. Another example is in Daniel three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were forced to, or told they had to bow down and worship a false image and they refused to do it. And they said, King, we will not do it. We would rather die and God will deliver us. And if he doesn't, we still won't do it. <laughs> I love their attitude when they share this really neat, good, good uh, example for us. So refusing in order to do something evil. Absolutely. You can't be like, 
uh, in some of the Nuremberg trials after um, the Holocaust, the defense that some of the men used was we were just following orders and that didn't fly. And they said, you shouldn't have followed those orders. And this is, this is a biblical principle too. There are things where a parent or a government might tell you to do something that's just morally wrong. And you say, I will not do it. And you are in the right in that situation. Obviously you can abuse this very easily. You could justify anything, but I want to make sure to teach the examples we have in the scripture. Another example in scripture is continuing to evangelize against specific orders not to. I like this one, right? In Acts chapter five, Peter and the other apostles with him, they were told, stop it. Just stop preaching about Jesus. You're driving us crazy. This isn't the right place. This isn't the right time. We're going to beat you up. You know, like we're going to, we're going to come after you. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Anytime government or any authority, no matter how high, how high they are, they're trying to get you to disobey God. You rebel. Now, this doesn't mean you rebel against everything they say. You only rebel against the order to disobey God. In every other way, you submit. I still pay my taxes. I still you know, use the crosswalk. I still drive at the speed limit. I still obey all the other orders, but I do not obey the order that had me rebelling against God. Now, I would encourage us this, is don't focus on the exceptions. Don't focus on those. Be aware of them. But don't focus on those because it prepares our hearts for rebellion. And the whole idea of the text is to prepare us for submission. And we should really be trying to submit as, as much as possible. That should be our, our angle and our direction. What about preachers? Um, I kind of answered this, but should preachers speak out against government wickedness? As I said, John the, John the Baptist did. It got him killed. The prophets did, even to non-Israeli governments. But I think perhaps if we're preaching, like myself, preaching against government, or even you, you don't have to be a pastor to preach, you know, and we're speaking out against the, the injustices of government, we should do this not just to fix government, but to call people to repentance. That's the main focus. That's the main goal, because we are trying to make them part of a new kingdom that is eternal. We're not just trying to fix government. Um, and I can't think of a single reason not to. So personally, I feel incredibly compelled to speak out against abortion. Abortion is, is probably the greatest wickedness of our time. I can't think of anything worse. We're engaging in it regularly in our country, and they absolutely have to repent. And people who've had abortions, you've committed murder, you need to repent. The only thing that will cover you is the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and he will cover you completely and utterly, and you'll be totally free. Other than that, you're completely guilty. People that are performing abortions and recommending it and, and, and encouraging others to do it. You think you're patting them on the back and helping them out. You're just giving them a push off the cliff into judgment. And our, our world needs to repent of these things. This is murder. This is the thing government's supposed to protect people from. Everyone has the right to life except little babies in the womb. and no right to life whatsoever in our country. And that's just, it's a terror and it's a, it's a horrible thing. And um, it's the greatest shame of our country right now. And it is worse even than slavery ever was. Uh, it's, yeah, I feel compelled to speak out against it. And I think we all ought to absolutely to, to take a stand against abortion in any way that we can, where we're still obeying Christ. We're not, I'm not bombing abortion clinics like murder is going to fix murder. Um, it wouldn't stop it anyways. But, uh, but anyways, th these are, these are a big deal, but I don't feel compelled as a, or as a Christian for that matter, to speak out against non-moral issues. So if taxes are, are too high, like to me, it's not really a big deal to me. I mean, it's a big deal financially, okay? I get that. And, but as a, as a Christian, now if I have a role in government, I want to really fight too high taxes and things like that. But as a Christian speaking to government, this is not my big issue. 
it's the moral issues that, that I personally feel compelled to speak about, not the other ones. What about serving in government? Can a Christian serve in government? Policing, going to war, ruling, say as governor, president, this type of, uh, I wish we had a Christian president one of these days. Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 14, there's a, there's a centurion, a soldier who comes to John the Baptist and he's repenting of his sin. And he asks what he should do next. Perfect chance for the New Testament to tell us, don't serve in government. But he says, likewise, the soldier asked him saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. He tells them to, to not be corrupt. I think that that's the idea. Christian, go get in there. You know, maybe not every believer is going to serve in government, but sure, plenty of us ought to. And we should get involved. We should serve and we should serve with righteousness without any corruption. Just knowing you're not trying to make the government the church. But there is a moral rule that you are trying to help spread throughout government. We'll come back to that in a minute. All right, let's look at verse 2, because I want to do more than one verse tonight. I want to do seven. Well, I've done like 12 already, but anyway, in Romans 13. So verse 2, it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. This is to the believer what it all comes down to, is that I'm not even submitting just to man. I'm submitting to God. When I submit to government, even ungodly government, unless it's telling me to do something wicked, I will submit. Unless it's telling me not to do something righteous, I will submit. In the vast majority of situations, resistance is wrong. I like that it uses the word resist. It doesn't even just say rebel. It just says resist. I'm not even going to resist the government. We, we are a, a nation that was founded by rebels. Let's not forget this. So we sometimes have rebellion in our blood. So we're sometimes very quick to be like, oh yeah, try it government. Come over here and try that and I'll get you. And it's like, this is the wrong attitude for a believer in Jesus to have. I should have an attitude of submission when at all possible. That should be my role. I can speak out against problems. I can go within and try to change from within, but rebellion is a different thing. Resistance is a different thing. So notice the wording. It says you resist the ordinance of God. It's important to notice what the Bible doesn't say here. It doesn't say you resist the orders of God. Because government's orders aren't God's orders. Government's orders are simply a result of God ordaining that government. So the orders might be wrong. But the role is still legitimate. The, or the decisions might be bad. But the role is still legitimate. So I walk in submission because of that. So sovereignty, I think, is seeing God's overarching control without seeing his endorsement of every act or every action. I mean, he clearly does not endorse every act of government. We see that in the scripture. Here's a verse for us because I think we need it. Proverbs 17, 11 says, An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent to him. <laughs> that would be the government, actually. Um, an evil man seeks only rebellion. So for this, I'd say for all of us, guard your heart. If you have a place full of scoffing, mockery, dismissal of authority, where you can't help but ridicule everybody in government and every decision of government, something's wrong in the heart. It doesn't mean government's right. It just means that you've got something going on here that's not healthy. If you're quick to mention how government or a person is accountable to God, be even quicker to note you are accountable to God for your submission to those people. Just for your own sake. Reading on verse 3 of Romans 13, it says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. 
I think God uses government to keep people from wickedness. That's really the function of government, to keep people from wickedness. This is like its fundamental purpose, and Christians should be the best citizens in this regard. You know, when the, when the mayor of the town comes by and they're like, look at these people, man, they're paying their taxes, they're helping their neighbors, they're walking in, in submission to the laws of the land, these are the kind of people governments enjoy. We ought to be the kind of people that governments enjoy when possible, which most of the time it is possible. There are situations where there's the exceptions. We went, th- went over those, but most of the time this is quite possible. And Christians should be the best at this. And we do what's right, not even for looks. Like I don't do it because I know that they're coming to check my house tomorrow. I do it because I'm doing it unto God. And I know he's watching me and my yielding to government. This is going to really rub up against your flesh. This is not going to feel good, this submission. But it will feel right to your spirit because that's exactly what God's calling us to do. Keep in mind, they were submitting to the Roman government, which was certainly a lot worse than our American government that most of us live in here. The Roman government was kind of messed up. You know how they would collect taxes? Well, they had they had a flat tax, but then they had other things in addition to taxes that went way above and beyond all that. And so let's say I would I would bid, I would actually purchase the, the right from government. I'd pay the money to buy the right to tax a certain group of people. Then I would go to those people and I was allowed to tax them as much as I wanted, as long as I paid government a portion of a certain amount, and then I got to keep the rest. This is why when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, got saved, he says, I'll pay back anybody I owe, double what I owe, I will pay you all back. Because he'd extorted them, and that was, that was, the, um, that was the routine. So verse 4, he says, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. God's minister. I've, I've heard this before. Pastors like to get up in front of the police and they go, did you know you're ministers? Just to freak them out because I don't know why, but pastors like doing that, right? Like, did you know you're ministers? And cops are like, why did they invite a pastor in here? But, but there is a truth to this. There is a balancing truth to this. There are ministers in the realm of government. They're not ministering to the body of Christ, right? They're just ministering to humanity in general to keep them from wickedness. And it's, their authority comes from God. So that means that their sword is coming from God as well. Does this make them godly? No, they're not those kind of ministers, guys. <laughs> like this doesn't make them godly people or, or anything like that. It just means that we see that the authority they have comes back to God ultimately. And in that sense, they're his ministers. Is, it endor- is this an endorsement of capital punishment in the New Testament? I absolutely think it is. It's not that I care about it. I mean, I'm, I'll go either way, Lord. You want me to say yay or nay on capital punishment? I'm fine with it. But I do think that Bible actually is endorsing it. Let's read it again. He's God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he's God's minister to, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Some of the ministry that governments do is slaying the wicked. That's what the text seems to be saying. Now, don't we don't now? Obviously, you could take the things I'm saying out of context and twist it, try to make it sound terrible. But the truth is, swords weren't for scratching people, right? The so swords aren't spanking people; it's slaying individuals, and they're meant to be the people who deserve it truly, especially murder. That's the one thing we know for sure. This was the thing: murder, right? Um, a central role of government's punishing evil. And at this point, someone says, "Mike, you're such a fool. Don't you know?" You cannot legislate morality. Have you guys heard that before? You can't legislate morality? I remember hearing that when I was a kid. And it just, we were talking about something. So we, you can't legislate morality. And I was like, oh, I don't know what to say anymore. You know, I'm just, I'm done. But, 
but the truth is, then I thought about it. And one day I was like, wait a minute. Legislation is morality. Everything we legislate is morality for the most part. The vast majority of legislation is about morality. Do you believe in civil rights? Absolutely. It's just morally wrong to have racism integrated into your governmental system. So you think we should legislate that morality? Of course we should, right? This is, that's legislating morality. That's what we're doing. Do you believe that theft is wrong? Yes, theft is a moral wrong. We should have the government legislate against theft and enforce anti-theft laws. I agree. Do you believe that elders should be protected against elder abuse? Yes, but we're legislating morality, aren't we? Yes, we are. Do you think abortion is wrong? Yes, it's wrong to kill babies. It's not a clump of cells, except in the sense that you're a clump of cells. So we should legislate against it. So government's role in abortion is legit. Like, they need to stop this. That's murder. This fits government's role. This isn't just because I'm trying to make the government be the church. No, I want them to be the government. Do your job. Stop murder. This is where you're dropping the ball, government. And for the dumbest reasons in the world, craziest thing in the world is listening to pro-abortion people justify abortion with the nuttiest stuff you've ever heard. If you stop for a minute and pull apart what they just said, you're like, you're just insane. You're just insane. Like you just, you think it's okay to kill people. Innocent. Anyway, I'll move on. <laughs> I just explode. It's pretty serious stuff. And so it, this is a role of government that there should be legislation f for those issues as well. And it is legislating morality and that's what government does. Um, verse five, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And this is beautiful because this gives us two reasons why I should submit to government. One, wrath. So you don't get beat up, right? This is, this is the wrath reason. Because if I get caught, I'll get in trouble. So th this is why government has the sword. They're like, we may not get you all to do the right thing because you want to do the right thing. But that's why we got this shiny little tool here. You know, and that's the idea. But there's a second reason as a Christian, I should submit because of conscience. Because it's right. So I don't just obey government because I'm afraid of wrath. I obey government also because ultimately I'm honoring God and there's no authority except from God. The authorities exist are appointed by God, and therefore I ought to be subject to them. I want to move from one to two. I want to move my heart from the, the one position where I'm, I just don't do stuff so I don't get busted to the two position where I do it to honor the Lord out of my conscience. Verse six, he says, for because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And if it couldn't get any worse, the Bible tells us to pay taxes. <laughs> Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Taxes are mentioned specifically. Christians pay taxes. Yep. And they were not always fair taxes. And this is generic. Notice this. None of this says Rome. It's just generic information for believers of all time. Pay your taxes. But they charge too much. Pay your taxes. I would stop paying taxes, or at least a portion of taxes, the point at which they were charging me so much I couldn't feed my children. Because I'd be like, now you're killing us. And that is wrong. You know? And I'd feel justified in that. Personally, I would. And I think that anybody would be justified in that. Um, but, uh, but if it's like, I won't pay taxes because I don't like what you're spending your money on. Do you know what Rome was spending their money on? Go look it up. I won't mention it. <laughs> But they didn't quit paying their taxes. Or I'll pay 30% of my taxes because you spend 70% of it on those things. It's like this is not, right? 
because of this, everyone, pay taxes in an equal portion to the goodness of your government. It doesn't say this in the scripture. It just says to pay taxes. Like it or not, it's just what it says. Jesus, he was asked the same question. Jesus, should we pay taxes? And he goes, show me one of those coins. And they show him a coin and he looks at it and, he, and it says, uh, it has Caesar's face on it. He goes, whose face is that on it? He goes, Caesar. And he goes, well, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, the realm of government. And render to God that which is God's. Now, God owns all. I give him everything, but I have a certain obedience to government. That's appropriate. That's right. As a Christian, not because I represent any particular government, because I represent Christ. Then it goes on. It says, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Uh, the, the office is real, so I should offer a sense of fear and honor and respect appropriate to the office of government. And I think I've failed in this so many times, maybe because of my culture. I've listened to too much radio where they talk about politics and they rip on and mock and ridicule people who are serve in politics. And it, I, know, I think it's, invest, in, it's invaded me a bit too. And so every time I get in the scripture and it talks about how my attitude should be towards leaders, political leaders, I get reminded that that attitude, that part of the attitude is wrong. So maybe we need to strip the sarcasm and the mockery out of our discussions of government and, and try to focus on as much as possible what is just good and right. Um, so let, let me, let me uh, answer finally my last question that I asked, and I'll see, hopefully I answered all those questions. I'll go back over them real quick here. But the final question was, do we want a theocracy? Uh, some Christians are accused of wanting a theocracy. Some actually do want a theocracy. I'll answer it this way. And I'm admitting it's going to be slightly complicated, but it should make sense. First off, yes, I want a theocracy. Of course, I want God to rule. Of course, I want God to be running everything. But here's the problem. Until God establishes a theocracy himself, anything that calls itself a theocracy is a lie. And so in that sense, I go, no, I don't want a theocracy. No, I don't want some people, some pretenders acting like they speak on behalf of God when he hasn't even given leaders of the church this right, right? I've got his word. I'm called to teach his word, but I don't get to speak on his behalf in his authority position. Neither does the government unless God himself actually does this, which he will on his own in the future. So anybody who says they've got a theocracy going on, that's a lie. And so as a Christian, I'm scared of that, man. I'm scared of some, some fakeocracy. I don't want that. <laughs> I think a Christianal, a Christianal, Christianal, I think a Christianal perspective is, I'm just going to roll with it. Jeremiah 29, seven, here's the advice to the believers who were Jews, right? Who were inhabiting a pagan land where God was not reigning as a, in a theocratic thing. Here's their advice. Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. In its peace, you will have peace. And this mimics Timothy where he's saying, pray for, for peace, pray for those in, the leaders in government. We are called to affect things. We're called to impact things, but we're not trying to create a theocracy because it will be counterfeit if we try. I let God rule me, but I don't pretend that I rule you in the name of God. Not even in the church do we do this, right? We don't, leaders don't have this kind of authority in the church. Ultimately, that's reserved for God and he'll, he'll establish it when he comes. Um, so let me go back over those seven questions because I want to make sure I answered all of them. Number one, What's a biblical view of the separation of church and state? It's just the perspective of this, that here's the church. It's a different sort of realm of activity than the government. The government's here to punish evildoers and to keep the peace. The church is here to evangelize the world. We invade every government, but we don't try to make it a theocracy because that would be counterfeit anyways. So I go and wherever I'm at, I submit, I yield, but I do call government to the moral accountability they have before God, which is why I preach against certain government wrongs. 
Number two, why is there no such thing as entirely secular government? Because government gets its authority and its power from God and they're accountable to God with those things. So, you, so a government that pretends that there's no God is a government in rebellion against God. Uh, what's wrong with the government trying to act like it's the church? Well, God's not doing that. And so you're imposters. And here you are trying to claim authority over the people of God and it's not yours. So it's wrong if you try to act like the church. You, you know, in England right now, like you have to have a vote, from what I understand, a vote from parliament if you want to change the order of service in the Anglican church, the Church of England. That's ridiculous. Like parliament, sorry, you have no right to tell the church when they can worship or how they can worship. This is silliness. Like this is, that to me is unbiblical. Um, and I don't know if I'd start a revolution over the order of service. <laughs> but, it, but, but in point of fact, I think it's silly. Um, Number four, what's wrong with the church acting like the government? Again, it's fake. We're not called to be that kind of thing. And so acting like we are and trying to usurp as though in the voice of God, I can speak and tell everyone how they can live and submit to Christ or else this doesn't fit the ministry of Christ or the apostles or the teaching of the new or old Testament. So I think there's a problem there. Why shouldn't Christians turn their back on government? Because we're, we're told to submit to government and we're told to pray for government. And we have examples of wonderful believers impacting government in wonderful ways without turning it into a, uh, a giant pulpit to force everyone to obey Christ. And number six, where does the Bible stand on capital punishment? I think Old and New Testament is, a, is approving of capital punishment. In fact, I think governments need to do this if they're going to fulfill their responsibilities. This is not because of any Republican or partisan issues. This is because of what the text says. Number seven, should preachers speak out against government? Yes, and more. <laughs> but they should do from an attitude of respect and submission to the government, but calling them to the accountability they have before God in an honest way. Um, and then finally, do we want a theocracy? Yes, but we don't want a fake one. And that's why we're waiting for God to do it himself, according to at least my understanding of prophecy, when he comes and makes it happen on his own. So let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you for your word, at least some clarity on these issues, I hope. And, uh, and Father, we ask that, uh, that you give us discernment to see in ourselves if there's a seed of rebellion or if there's some sort of obscene, over-ecstatic patriotism where we're committed to our government the way we're committed to Christ. We just pray for discernment. We pray for the ability to filter everything through the scriptures, to have a biblical mindset as we evaluate our role, whether we serve in government or we serve, we serve by submitting to government but uh, to at, all, at all times, continue serving and submitting to Christ in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.